tonight we're studying specific questions of ethics using the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue as the focus of our study. Okay, so we're talking about, this working? Normative ethics, problems or issues. And last week I started by giving a little bit of an introduction to the Decalogue by pointing out first that the Decalogue is not the only summary of God's moral requirements. Remember we said that the, uh, the scribes in the New Testament day made a habit of trying to formulate summaries of the Old Testament precepts and that this practice can be traced to the Old Testament itself where we find the summary of uh, God's moral requirements given in, le- in 11 precepts by Isaiah and uh, 6 precepts in another place and 3 precepts in another place and even narrowed down to 1 precept in another place by two Old Testament authors. Uh, and so when Jesus is asked which is the greatest commandment of all, uh, on which commandment does all the law and prophets hang, uh, it's not an uncommon thing to be asking that sort of question. Jesus gives a summary of the law in terms of uh, the love commands of the Old Testament. Love God first and your neighbor as yourself. So as we study the Decalogue, it's important to see that the Decalogue is not the only summary of the law that's available. Nevertheless, the Decalogue is a very important summary. And one way in which we can see the importance of the Decalogue as a summary was in terms of the character and contents of the Decalogue that I gave to you very hurriedly at the end of uh, last week's class. Remember I talked about the Decalogue extending to the heart, extending to all areas of life, extending to all men. Um, The Decalogue touching on the situational perspective, the goal of ethics. The Decalogue touching upon the existential perspective, the moral agent. The Decalogue uh, dealing with the... um, the normative perspective, obviously, and the uh, retribution that God brings upon those who disobey. So the content and character of the Decalogue show it to be in very, a very important summary of the law, uh, even though it's not the only summary of the law. We can see the importance of the Decalogue as, as a summary of the law in other ways as well. Uh, I would note the uniqueness of the occasion on which the Decalogue was given. At the time that God fulfilled his promise to deliver his people, he gave the law. Uh, When God gave the law, it was upon a holy mountain with thunder and lightning, a cloud and the sounds of trumpet. Moreover, this was the only time that the people of God as a whole gathered together and heard directly the divine voice. The only time in the history of redemption where God's voice was heard directly by the corporate people. This was the day of assembly, the Bible tells us, when Israel was constituted the covenant people of God and Moses was chosen as the mediator between God's people and God himself. We not only see the uniqueness of the circumstance, but notice the uniqueness of the way in which the Decalogue was published, written by the very finger of God. And we can see also the uniqueness of the Decalogue's function in the covenant itself, that is, in terms of God's covenantal dealing with his people. Have you ever stopped to think what the first Bible was? What was the first written scripture? Well, some people have argued that the, um, that the books of generations mentioned in Genesis 5 constitutes the first written scripture that we know of. Uh, The Bible tells us of that, and that may or may not be true. Um, The fact remains that even if that's the first scripture, the first covenantal scripture, the first scripture given in covenantal form and with covenantal thrust, is the Decalogue, written by the very finger of God, constituting Israel a covenant nature, uh, nation. The Decalogue is the first written covenant document then, and it becomes the seed out of which all the rest of the biblical canon grows. And since it is the seed, you might properly expect all the revelation of the Bible to be contained in seed form in the Decalogue. And I believe it is. 
So we see the uh, importance of the Decalogue in terms of its character and content, in terms of the uniqueness of uh, the context in which it was given, the uniqueness of the way it was given, the uniqueness of its function as a covenant document. And notice also that the Decalogue, more than any other summary of the law, is cited later in the Bible over and over and over again. It has a distinctive function within the canon. It's not the whole of the canon, it's only the seed of the canon. And yet it is cited over and over again, which is somewhat unique. Now, I think there's another way in which we, can, we might look upon the Decalogue as having um, a prominence that other summaries of God's moral requirements do not. In a general sense, when we are trying to find out about some biblical doctrine, it's our habit to look at those biblical passages in which the doctrine is most clearly presented I and mean, most explicitly set forth. And so in a class on Christian ethics, we're asking ourselves, what does God require of us? What demand does God make on my attitudes, on my words, my behavior, and so forth? Now then, it's generally recognized that the Old Testament as a whole functions more clearly, more constructively, more explicitly to lay down moral instruction than does the New Testament as a whole. That is, if you want a rough and ready summary, you have law and gospel. That doesn't mean they're set in contrast. I mean, that doesn't mean they're antagonistic to each other. But the Old Testament spends a lot more time laying out moral instruction than does the New. By the way, that very fact should tell you something about this theonomy debate that's going on and the antipathy to the Old Testament that we see in many circles. The fact is that the New Testament doesn't feel any need to go into great ethical detail, not because the Holy Spirit has taken the place of the law, which some surmise, but rather because the Old Testament was perfectly sufficient to tell us what the Old Testament didn't do, didn't accomplish, didn't apply, was redemption. The New Testament focuses upon the grace of God that gives us the ability to keep the law of God now that we've been saved due to our violations of the law of God. But my point is now that the Old Testament in general gives um, our duty a little more explicitly, extensively, and constructively than does the New Testament. Now, having said we want to look for our Christian duty, the Old Testament might be the place to focus on in that regard. The Torah as the one of the three sections of the Old Testament more explicitly than the other two sections gives us our duty to God. Obviously, our duty to God is found in the prophets and in the poets as well, but the Torah tells us of our duty to God. And it turns out that the very heart of the Torah is what? The Decalogue. So you see what I'm getting at? In, in a rather um, general sense, in terms of biblical interpretation, it's natural that we gravitate toward the Ten Commandments, toward the Decalogue, when we're trying to summarize and apply our Christian duty. The Old Testament more than the New centers on duty, the Torah more than the other two sections, and the Decalogue is the heart of the Torah. All right? So my point is that the Decalogue is not the only summary of our moral duty. We mustn't and I'm afraid we, we make this mistake, especially today, totally apart from whether you like theonomy or the theonomic principle. We make the mistake of, of exalting the Decalogue as though it had this unique preeminence and nothing else is needed. Well, that's not true. The Decalogue is only one of many available and valid summaries of God's moral requirement. Nevertheless, I do want to say the Decalogue is an important summary and has all these unique features about it that should be taken into account. Having said that, let's remember the limitations of any summary. Any summary is going to have limitations in the very nature of the case. Christ told us that all of our duty to God and to man could be summarized in the love commandments. 
And yet the love commandments are not sufficient in themselves, are they? They may summarize the whole, but they're not sufficient. Because you know, and I know, and we've read of people who use the love commandments to justify such things as adultery, or murder, or any number of things, in this broad, vague sense of love. So the love command may be adequate as a summary, but a summary is never in itself adequate. The summary needs to be supplemented. See, even within the Old Testament, now looking at the Decalogue as a summary, as one of those many summaries of God's moral requirement, even within the Old Testament, the Decalogue was supplemented by the Book of the Covenant, Exodus 21 to 24. It was supplemented by case laws, and now in this case do this, and in this case do that, and in this case do this, and in this case do that. It is supplemented by uh, a lot of non-legal material in the, in the Old Testament as well. The prophets and the poets show us how God's moral demand comes to expression. And in the New Testament, we find those correlations which are necessary between the law of God and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, my point is that the Decalogue cannot stand alone. It must be interpreted, now to make my point very easy, in context. You've got to take it in context. Isn't that an elementary rule of biblical interpretation? You must see the summary in its context. To define murder or to define adultery or stealing, you've got to consult all of Scripture and not just the summary statement of, scrip of Scripture, the Ten Commandments or love or what have you. And I think Jesus was making that point when he said we must obey every jot and tittle and over against those who think that means Old Testament legalism, every jot and tittle includes every jot and tittle of the New Testament as well. Every jot and tittle of God's revelation must be taken into account as the context for obedience to any particular law, be it the love command, the decalogue, or a case law. All right, so I'm just saying here what everybody should know, that we interpret the Bible in context. Moreover, I think the decalogue itself tells us that it must be read in context, in the context of God's redemption and in the context of further revelation. The Decalogue itself shows us its own limitations. The Decalogue begins with an announcement of the divine name. I am Jehovah, your God. I am Yahweh, your God. You see, the law is not authoritative just because it happens to be true. It isn't as though Moses just happened to strike upon those universal principles of right and wrong. The Decalogue is authoritative because of its author, because I am God, because I am Jehovah. We obey the law because of who God is. The law, in fact, as we've already studied, reveals God's own moral character as the covenant Lord. And so we obey the law because of the announcement of the divine name, I am Jehovah, your God. Moreover, the law then goes on to summarize the history of redemption who has brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You see, the basis of our obedience is not simply that the law is a commandment to us, but because we are grateful to our Savior. You see, on the one hand, the Lordship of God, I am Jehovah, I am the Lord, you must obey. And I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. In gratitude, we want to do this. And so grace, in a sense, precedes the law. And obedience takes place in the context of grace. Well, in all these ways, then, I think we see that the Decalogue can't stand by itself. We don't keep the Decalogue in some moralistic, abstract sense. We keep it because of who God is and what he has done. We must confess, very frankly, the limitations of this summary of the law or any summary of the law. When we consider the Decalogue tonight, it is not the only way we could talk about biblical ethics. Moreover, in many senses, it's not the best way in which we could talk about biblical ethics. 
but it is in many ways, nevertheless, a useful and a uniquely useful way to talk about ethics. So I hope I've done the, I could say much more, but I'm hurrying on. Uh, I hope I've said enough to show you that we must have a due deference for the Decalogue, but we must not make it more than it is. It is not the only summary of the law, but it is a very important summary of the law, but any summary has its limitations. I'd like to talk about now how we interpret the law. How should we interpret the Decalogue? The Westminster Larger Catechism gives us certain rules that uh, the Catechism says are to be followed in uh, reading and understanding and applying the Ten Commandments. I'd like to read um, those rules for you. The reason such rules are needed, by the way, question 98 in the Larger Catechism, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. You notice that the Ten Commandments are not the whole of the moral law. Anybody who says that the Ten Commandments alone are the moral law of God is in violation of the larger catechism in the most explicit sense. The Ten Commandments summarize the moral law. Obviously, if the Ten Commandments were the whole of the moral law, they wouldn't summarize it, they'd be it. But this says the moral law is summarily comprehended. But since the Ten Commandments are only a summary, then you need certain rules for reading the Ten Commandments to get all the rest out of the summary. So the next question is, what rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, for the right understanding of the summary of the moral law? And um, very quickly, the following eight rules are given. The law is perfect and binds everyone to full conformity and the whole man unto the righteousness thereof. Okay, so that it requires the utmost perfection of every duty and forbids the least degree of every sin. Secondly, that the law is spiritual, reaching to the understanding, will, affections, and all powers of the soul. Uh, it, it applies to all words, all works, and all gestures. You're beginning to feel a little uncomfortable? The third rule, that one and the same thing in divers' respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That many of the commandments you see cover our, all of the commandments in one way or another cover the whole of our moral duty I'll come back to that the fourth rule that when when a duty is commanded the contrary sin is forbidden and where a sin is forbidden the contrary duty is commanded that will pose some problems in a minute fifth that what God forbids is at no time to be done what he commands is always our duty and yet not every particular duty is to be done at all times as it isn't my duty right now to be disciplining my children. It's my duty to be teaching this class. Sixthly, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded. Now, there's a real crunch for non-theonomists, if you don't mind this aside. That under one sin or duty, under one of the summary commands of the moral law, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded. Homosexuality, you see, is a form of sexual impurity. It is included in the command, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, seventhly, that what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound according to our places to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others. So that means if I'm a civil magistrate, according to my place, I should seek uh, others not doing these things. Eighth, that what is commanded to others, we are bound according to our places and callings to be helpful to them and to take heed of partaking with others in what is forbidden to them. Okay, so now these eight rules are given. You have to start with the ten summary laws, and then you can work out all the rest from those eight rules. Well, there are some problems with uh, these rules for a right understanding of the Decalogue in light of um, what is our normal concept of grammatico-historical exegesis. Many of these rules will seem strange in, in the modern world in a non-Puritan context, I, I dare say. 
For instance, that fourth rule says that where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. But normal logic doesn't allow for that. Normal logic doesn't, um, doesn't deduce commands from prohibitions and prohibitions from commands, and there's a reason for that. Um, it's pretty hard to deduce what the contrary duty is if I tell you, do not put your pencil in the pastor's study. Now, what is the contrary duty for do not put your pencil in the pastor's study? Well, that might mean put somebody else's pencil in the pastor's study, right? The contrary duty. Or the contrary duty might be put your pencil in the secretary's office instead. Or it might mean don't put your pencil anywhere. Or it might mean don't have a pencil. So you see, it's, it's hard logically to deduce what the contrary duty is from certain commands. It's, it's difficult, you see, just by itself to use that rule on a summary commandment. Another question arises. In 108 of the larger catechism, we are told that the second commandment requires such things as the administration of the sacraments, religious fasting, and vows. But I would imagine that anybody apart from a Puritan context, uh, anybody uh, who was told to use grammatical historical exegesis on that commandment would not likely come up with that conclusion today. Well, what are we to do about this? Well, I think this is very good advice nonetheless. I mean, while there are rough spots and it's difficult um, because we don't have the Puritan mindset, we don't have the unity that was uh, evident uh, even in that day, uh, nevertheless, I think the point they were making was not only a valid point, but it's still a very important point today. I'd like to go on and, and point that out. You see, the Catechism looks at sins described in the light of the whole Bible. In fact, anybody, again, this is an aside, you'll probably get a lot of those tonight because of the nature of the lecture, but anybody who suggests that the Ten Commandments can stand by themselves, or the Ten Commandments, the whole moral law, just ask them, well, how on earth do you use those rules then? How can you use those rules in light of the problems that I've, I've, I've listed and many more that could be given? I suggest that the Puritans were, in fact, looking at, the, looking at the Ten Commandments in light of the whole Bible, and that what one finds when the whole Bible is consulted is that each sin referred to in the Decalogue includes all other sins. Didn't James 2, verse 10, already say that? That if you break the law at one point, you have done what? You've broken the whole law. There's a sense in which every moral duty can be found under every commandment of the Decalogue. Oh, I see some skeptical looks out there. All right, let me try to illustrate. Let's start with the first commandment. <laughs> We're still dealing with interpretation here. I'm going to come back and go through the Ten Commandments at length. But I'd just like to illustrate this point, that um, every commandment includes every moral duty. Now, the first commandment is we are not to have any other gods. Well, now, other gods include such things as mammon or anything that competes with God for our ultimate loyalty. Anything that gets in the way of serving God properly is another god. Now, since any sin can be viewed as disloyalty to God, violation of any commandment of the Decalogue is disloyalty to God, and therefore violation of any commandment in the Decalogue is violation of the first. Did you all follow that? What's the first commandment say? No other gods before me. Well, any time you sin, you have another god. Uh, you're putting some loyalty, some commitment, some priority above that uh, uh, than God, the living and true God, and therefore every sin is a violation of the first commandment. So think of the second commandment, the sin of worshiping a graven image or uh, worshiping anything of human devising, worshiping God by means of human devising. However, if you look at the concept of worship in the Bible, 
such as in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that worship can have a very broad uh, focus. Worship means the whole of one's life. We are to offer our bodies a living sacrifice to God. Any sin involves following our own purposes then, rather than God's purposes. And in following our own purposes, not giving our lives a spiritual sacrifice, a reasonable sacrifice, then we are violating the second commandment. Every sin is a violation of the second commandment. Look at the third commandment, how we are to honor the name of the Lord. And yet when you do a study of that concept of the name of the Lord in the Bible, you see that the name of the Lord can refer to God's entire self-revelation. Anything that God is, is comprised under his name. Disobedience of any sort to the revelation of God can thus be described as what? Violating his name, being vain, lifting up vanity rather than bearing his name properly. So all sins are violations of the, taking the name of the Lord in vain. How about the Sabbath commandment, number four? The fourth commandment demands the godly use of our entire calendar, right? Six days you labor, the seventh you rest. So then... Any ungodly use of time may be seen as a transgression of the fourth commandment. Any time you are doing something displeasing to God, you're breaking the fourth commandment, because the fourth commandment covers all your time. It's to be given to godly use, labor and worship. Or consider the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Well, father and mother throughout the Bible can be read broadly to refer to all authority. Even the authority of God himself is seen as the authority of a father in Malachi 1.6. And therefore, all disobedience to God is disobedience to one's father. It's a disobedience to proper authority. It's a disobedience to the fifth commandment. The sixth commandment should be easy. Now that you've got the hang of this, right? You, you look at the Bible in its whole context. You see how the first commandment covers the whole, the second commandment covers the whole, third commandment covers the whole, the fourth commandment covers the whole, fifth commandment covers the whole. I come to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Anybody want to, I mean... Remember I told you about Jonathan, how I teach him to teach by, uh, to count by twos? You go two, four, six, eight. Eventually he catches on. Okay, I've done one, two, three, four, and five. Has anybody caught on? How does the sixth commandment forbid every other sin? No takers. Well, I'll give you one more illustration. You take the next one, okay? The sixth commandment prohibits unrighteous anger, according to Jesus, doesn't it? Even unrighteous anger is covered. Why is that? Because unrighteous anger shows disrespect for life. Disrespect for life. Now, what does God say about keeping his commandments? That if we keep his commandments, it will be health and well-being and life to us. And if we don't, what will it be? Destruction, decay, and death. Consequently, all sin manifests a disrespect for life because all sin is working under the principle of death. And the sixth commandment says we are not to give uh, place to unlawful death, but rather we are to promote the interest of life. You're beginning to feel, I hope, a more biblical approach to the Ten Commandments instead of this narrow kind of little picky this, that, and the other. Each one of these commandments is exceeding broad. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what the psalmist said? Okay, the Seventh Commandment. Who's going to take the Seventh? Greg? Oh, obviously. Honor your father and mother means you must listen to the commands they give. But to see, broadly speaking, the Fifth Commandment calls for respect for all lawful authority. And any time you are sinning, you are not respecting the lawful authority of God, our Father. And therefore, every time you sin, you violate the fifth commandment, broadly speaking. Well, we'll talk about that later on tonight under the fifth commandment. That's true, that we have duties that go beyond the Bible. Uh, there's nothing about speed limits in the Bible. And yet, I have a duty not to break 
the law with respect to speeding because uh, that's a duly constituted authority. And when the state says, thou shalt not, I should not. So that's true. But, I mean, I could see false applications of the principle, but I won't speculate right now. Who's going to take the Seventh Commandment? Jerry. Very good. Very good. That isn't the way I was going to do it, but you're absolutely... There's not just one way of doing this, because what he's done is he related it to two other commandments, which he can very easily make the whole. But now take adultery directly. What is adultery symbolic of in the Bible? Yeah, worshiping other gods or violating the covenant order. And so anytime you sin, you're violating the covenant order. You're committing adultery. How about the Eighth Commandment? Don't steal. Well, think about Malachi 3.8. When you withhold what is God's due honor, his tithes and his offerings in that instance, anytime you withhold God's due honor, when you take away his due, you are stealing from God. And that's sacrilege, and it's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Now, anytime you sin, you're also failing to give God his due honor, aren't you? And in failing to give God his due honor, you're stealing. And so all sin comes under the condemnation of the Eighth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment. Anybody? Uh, we're slow learners tonight. Witnessing in Scripture is something that you are. You are a witness. It's not just what you say, but it's something that you are. Everything that you do is a form of witness. Everything you say is a form of witness. So witnessing involves speech. It involves actions. It's comprehensive. And any time our actions or our speech uh, betray sinful desires and sinful tendencies and directions, then we are giving a false witness. We are leading away from the truth. Tenth commandment, coveting, just like stealing, is involved in all sin. Sinful acts are the product of a selfish heart. And so you see there's a unity to sin as there is a unity to righteousness. All of righteousness is seen in the one word, love. And all of sin can be seen in, the, in, in any one of the Ten Commandments as well. Okay, so what I've been trying to say is that when we interpret the commandments, we must interpret them in context. There's a very broad focus to every one of them, and in that sense, the larger catechism gives us very good rules for understanding the Ten Commandments. Okay, having seen the breadth of the commandments, let's also look at the narrowness of the commandments. You see, even though each commandment includes all the other commandments, these commandments are not synonymous. Lying and stealing are not the same thing. Adultery and, uh, and murder are not the same things. Each one of the commandments, therefore, takes our total obligation and looks at our total obligation from a different perspective, in different terms, with a different focus. I think there's a very, very uh, in, insidious tendency abroad in the Christian church today and many ethical writings to eliminate specific meaning in favor of simple general meaning. And I think that's unwarranted. For the general has no meaning apart from the specific. What is spiritual adultery if it doesn't involve some kind of specific behavior? I mean, it's all well and good to preach, don't commit spiritual adultery. But until you tell people what spiritual adultery amounts to and how it's illustrated and how it comes to expression, you're not telling very much at all. You see, if you try to get rid of the specifics of God's law in favor of only the general basic principles, in terms of only the summaries, then you have all the problems associated with situation ethics. And those today who want only the Ten Commandments, and by the way, there aren't many who are consistent in that, but there are a lot who say that very loudly. Those who want only the Ten Commandments have all the problems that Joseph Fletcher does. Right, so somebody says, I think all the Ten Commandments are a duty, but nothing more than that. And then you say, well, now how about bestiality? Can you commit bestiality today? And he says, oh. Well, you see, I think that's included under the Seventh Commandment. Well, all well and good. 
That's the way the Bible interprets the Ten Commandments, too. That's the Puritan approach. Now, just be consistent and do that with all the rest of the details of the law. But somebody who says, no, it's only the summary commandments, but no nothing else, just like Joseph Fletcher. Fletcher has one command, the command to love. And what does love mean? Well, that's determined on an autonomous basis, given changing situations. And although somebody might say, I'm ten times better than Fletcher, he has the one commandment of love, I have the ten commandments, the problems are still there. I mean, you don't minimize it very much by having ten principles, because you still have to apply the ten principles. And so, we must pay attention to the narrowness of God's commandments. Every commandment has a broad as well as a narrow meaning. In a sense, then, the meaning of each one of the Ten Commandments can be seen in three ways. And you must get this in your notes, even if you're not following to this point. First of all, every commandment includes the whole duty of man. All right? So we take the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. Well, any time you sin, you're stealing from God. You're not giving Him His due honor. All right? So the Eighth Commandment includes every moral duty of man. But the Eighth Commandment also applies to the whole area of our transactions with others, private property and finances and, and what have you. The Eighth Commandment means you don't steal from people, you don't defraud your workers of their pay, you don't muzzle your oxen when they tread out the corn, and on and on and on. So the Eighth Commandment can cover every commandment, be it in the realm of sex or politics or speech or what have you, but the Eighth Commandment can also be taken for a whole area having to do with the use of uh, our possessions. And then, even more narrowly, the Eighth Commandment has to do with specific applications as well. Thirdly, you see, the specific applications. Let me illustrate. What does the Eighth Commandment require of you tonight? Well, I dare say the Eighth Commandment requires that you not commit adultery, it requires that you not steal, and it requires that you not eat donuts without paying for them. Okay, all of that's in the Eighth Commandment. Because in one sense, the Eighth Commandment covers every sin. In another sense, it covers all the sins under the category of finances or property or possessions. And then thirdly, it applies to those specific instances where um, we find forms of stealing, if you will. The Eighth Commandment covers the whole duty of man. The Eighth Commandment covers a whole area of man's duty, that is, possessions, uh, the seventh dealing with sex, the sixth dealing with life, so forth. So there's also a whole area. And then the third is the specific applications. Or, if you will, in a sense, the Eighth Commandment could apply to any sin. I just say, don't commit adultery, all right? So anytime a man commits adultery, he's not giving God his due, he's stealing. The Eighth Commandment refers to stealing. Well, you don't defraud your workers of their pay, you don't muzzle your oxen when they tread out the corn, and on and on and on. So the Eighth Commandment can cover every commandment, be it in the realm of sex or politics or speech or what have you, but the Eighth Commandment can also be taken for a whole area having to do with the use of uh, our possessions. And then even more narrowly, the Eighth Commandment has to do with specific applications as well. Thirdly, you see the specific applications. Let me illustrate. What does the Eighth Commandment require of you tonight? Well, I dare say the Eighth Commandment requires that you not commit adultery, it requires that you not steal, and it requires that you not eat donuts without paying for them. Okay, all of that's in the Eighth Commandment. Because in one sense, the Eighth Commandment covers every sin. In another sense, it covers all the sins under the category of finances or property or possessions. And then, thirdly, it applies to those specific instances where um, we find forms of stealing, if you will.
No, we sent the principal first and third, but second we didn't get it down. In my illustration. Yeah. Okay, the eighth commandment. Not in the illustration, but not in the, not in the uh, proposition. Okay. The Eighth Commandment covers the whole duty of man. The Eighth Commandment covers a whole area of man's duty, that is possessions, uh, the Seventh dealing with sex, the Sixth dealing with life, so forth. So there's also a whole area. And then the third is the specific applications. Or, if you will, in a sense, the Eighth Commandment could apply to any sin. I just say, don't commit adultery, all right? So anytime a man commits adultery, he's not giving God his due, he's stealing. The Eighth Commandment refers to stealing, that is, the use of our possessions in general, okay, so that we don't take our brother's $5 bill when it's sitting on his dresser, but it also applies to specifics, specific forms of stealing, such as embezzlement or uh, eating donuts without paying for them or um, muzzling your ox when he's treading or not giving uh, a worker his uh, due hire and that sort of thing. What I'm getting at here is the same thing I was getting at with respect to the triangle earlier in our course. Remember I said that all of our moral duty can be summarized as a triangle? Everything God wants us to do can be found in his law, in the, in the normative perspective. On the other hand, everything God wants us to do can be found in the situation, excuse me, in the, in the motivational perspective, the moral agent. Everything God wants us to do can be found in the situational perspective or the goal of ethics. So which one of these is the proper approach to ethics? Normative, situational, or existential? Should we study the moral agent, moral commands, or the moral goal? Which is the most important? And the answer is none of them are any more important than the others. They're all necessary and they're all sufficient. If you really are studying the law, you'll be driven to these other two. If you're really studying the moral agent, you'll be driven to the other two. If you're really studying the goal of ethics, you'll be driven to the other two. So. Does that mean we can just ignore those perspectives? No, because each has its own unique contribution. Each is a different perspective. Now, the same is true of the Ten Commandments. This is very difficult to do. So you have to make a star and then invert it, and then you draw the points together so that you can get ten. You know what a decagon is? Oh, I've already blown it. Not enough angles here. I can't, I can't draw it very well. But hopefully you begin to get the point here that in a sense the ten commit oh don't count them <laughs> there's some people who get so tied up in the illustrations they miss the point I just confessed I couldn't draw it so here you all going alright each one of the commandments is a perspective on the whole right there are ten different ways to approach ethics each one of the ten commandments if you will Nevertheless, you have to have the whole. Each has its own unique contribution, and yet each can cover the whole field. That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, the last thing I want to say about interpreting the law, what have I said? The law has a broad perspective. Every commandment covers every sin. The law has a narrow perspective. Each commandment has its unique contribution to make and must be studied. You cannot have summaries without the specifics. And then thirdly, I do want to say just a couple of words about the negative focus of the commandments. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll notice that each one of them, except the fourth and fifth, are given in the form of a prohibition. Thou shalt not. The fourth commandment and the fifth are positive. Thou shalt, what, honor the Sabbath day and... Um, honor your father and mother. But eight of the ten 
commandments are given a negative form. Now, I've already pointed out that a negative formulation of the commandment doesn't rule out its positive application. Remember how the Puritans said that when a negative, uh, when a prohibition is given, the contrasting duty is required. So thou shalt not kill also means you should promote human life. Okay. It means you should take care of your health positively as well as refraining from murdering your neighbor when he, you know, does something that you don't like. So the prohibition implies the positive thing. So we must remember the negative formulations, uh, not the, uh, the end of the story when you're describing the Ten Commandments. But I do think the negative formulation of most of these commandments does reflect a reality of sin and temptation in our lives. Obedience to God always involves saying no. Obedience to God is always the opposite of submitting to the temptation, which is the contrary of that obedience. It's always saying no to Satan, to the world, and to our lust. Moreover, the very fact that God requires exclusive loyalty of his people calls for negations, it seems to me, in his requirements. When God tells us that we must love him alone, and that means we have to deny certain things. God makes distinctions when he calls us and redeems us. He, he says yes to us and no to others. He calls us out from the mass of humanity. He elects us. He redeems us. He knows us in a special and exclusive way. And in return, we must show our gratitude by loving him exclusively. And exclusive love means that we must say no to things. We must repent so that we turn away from sin to Christ. We must show self-denial so that we take up a cross and follow him. And we must show separation, breaking away from every association which might compromise our loyalty to God. I think it's interestingly, I think it's interesting to note how the New Testament is as much negative as is the Old Testament. You say the Decalogue is so negative. No, we don't like saying no, no, no. You know, we want to grow up and be ethically mature. But the New Testament is negative as well. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. How often does Jesus say, don't, don't, don't? So being negative is not to be bad. And if I might step on a few toes for a minute, including my own, uh... But I have noted, as somebody who comes from a different culture into this very strange and unique culture of the South, uh, if I could draw a caricature and exaggerate for a minute, that it is especially deemed ungracious and somehow wrong and uh, contrary to love and to biblical principle for a person to be negative here, to criticize something else or to, uh, or to judge something else. Now, Christianity as a whole has this problem today. I mean, modern evangelicalism has become so anemic and so soupy sentimental that any time you condemn things, any time you preach in a negative fashion, it's legalistic and it's judgmental and it's this, that, and the other, so we're told. But I tell you that I have found that especially to be true here in, in, in the environment of, of, of Southern Christianity. I don't mean our particular church or our particular denomination, but just as a whole. It is considered ungracious. It's, it's out of the cultural milieu to do this. And I, I hope that even though I, I'm not stating it as I might, you know, best if I thought it through better, you all know what I'm talking about. But the fact is you can't preach biblically without preaching negatively. And uh, I exhort those of you who are or who will be Southern preachers to remember that. 
that totally apart from what your seminary professors may say and totally apart from what your congregations may say, you cannot preach biblically without preaching negatively. And the day will come, I dare say, where you will have to choose between pleasing God and pleasing your congregation, between lifting up the word of God in its purity and tickling the ears of your hearers. See, many people object to this sort of thing, and they think any criticism, any prohibition lacks love. But truth must be proclaimed in contrast to error. Good must be understood in contrast to evil if truth and good are to be seen clearly and relevantly. If you do not preach negatively, then your people will not know what you're saying. They really won't. They won't understand it clearly, and they won't know how it applies. They won't be relevant. They won't. They won't understand it clearly, and they won't know how it applies. They won't be relevant. But don't you see how insidious then this thing, be it in the South or be it in the North, this whole idea of let's get rid of negativism is, this insidious movement against negativism is in fact saying we don't want to hear the whole counsel of God. We don't want a religion that applies to this, that, and the other. We want a comfortable religion that we can consign to 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and leave it right there. But if you start preaching negatively, that means that maybe something I'm doing on Sunday afternoon is going to be touched, or the way I'm relating to people on Monday morning is going to be touched, or the way I raise my children is going to be touched, or the way I use my money, and on and on and on. I dare say the fact that people don't want a negative form of preaching indicates that they don't want a relevant religion. And so, I say it again, your choice will be, as you witness to others, as you counsel with others, or as you preach the Word of God, your choice is going to be whether you will please God or please men. The negative focus of the Ten Commandments has a lesson to be told. I haven't told all of it, but I hope I've given you some hint as to what might be said. All right, one more thing, and then we'll get into um, the first of the Ten Commandments. I think we should say a word or two about the preface to the law of God the preface to the Ten Commandments, to the Decalogue. After putting my notes together, I reorganized it a bit, and I just want to make sure I haven't skipped something now that I've gone back. Okay. The preface to the Ten Commandments. First of all, notice the presence of God, the presence of God in the giving of the Ten Commandments. At Mount Sinai, when the covenant was made and Israel was set apart as God's people, the whole people of God heard the voice of God directly, without the mediation of prophecy, without writing, And as I've said, that's a unique event in the history of redemption. Very unique. But we haven't seen the uniqueness nearly enough when we say God was present and he spoke directly to the people and all these things happened. Because I want you to note what we read in 1 Peter 2.9. First of all, though, look at Exodus 19, verse 6. Exodus 19.6. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. Here you see is the preparation for the giving of the Ten Commandments. God uttering his voice from heaven, from the mount, audibly, so that people could hear, and all the people could hear, you will be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Now in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter speaks of the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and you'll notice these very same words are used. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you... Speaking of the church, you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The New Testament church is one body with Old Testament Israel. The assembly at Sinai is part of our community memory. 
Ever think about it that way? You are part of that same body that one day stood at Mount Sinai and heard God utter from the top of Sinai these commands. And so just as the community then was to take instruction from these commands, we who are part of that community must take instruction from those commands. But you see, we have even a greater memory of these things. Because the Bible says we have an even greater vision of Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. Hebrews 12, at verse 18. For you are not come unto a mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, and unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they heard and treated that no word should be spoken unto them, no more word should be spoken to them. For they could not endure that which was enjoined. If even a beast touch not the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so fearful was the appearance that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable hosts of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than of Abel. See that you don't refuse him that speaks. For if they escape not when they refused him that warned them on earth, much more shall not we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying... Yet once more will I make to tremble not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that have been made, that those things which are not shaken may remain. Therefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace, whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God in reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Oh, that's a powerful passage. Much preaching should be done on it. But the fact is that Hebrews is reminding us, in that day Israel saw the fire, in that day Israel knew the judgment of God, in that day Israel knew the vengeance of God, and they quaked before you see this mountain as it rumbled, and there was lightning, and this burning, consuming fire. And Peter says, you are part of that nation. You stand not simply at Mount Sinai, but you stand, you see, at the very base of the mountain of God. And our God is a consuming fire. We are part of that community. And so the law is given not simply to Israel. The law is given to us today. Moreover, the law was not simply given to Israel in that day. It was given also to the Gentiles round about. The law wasn't only given to Israel, although Israel was distinctive among all the nations because it was an elect nation and redeemed by God. Not all nations are redeemed, but all nations know the law. The particular covenantal, redemptive form of that law was given to Israel, but the requirements of the law were given to all men. Romans 1 and 2 teaches that the law is given to every man in nature and in conscience, so that the work of the law is shown to be written on their hearts. And that work of the law turns out to be ordinances which agree in content with the law given through Moses, even though it does not agree in form of mediation, does not agree in context of redemption. Moreover, as I argue in my book, pages 339 to 364, it's clear that rulers and heathen nations were expected to rule justly, which is to say, in accord with God's law. And so the Mosaic law is a formulation of the law which is known to all people and which already binds all people. It did not become binding with Moses 
it came in its covenantal redemptive form. By the way, if you put that in your notes and, and meditate on that for a week, I, I trust you'll, you'll get a lot from it. The law did not become binding with Moses. It was given in its redemptive form with Moses. It was already binding on all people. Okay, so my first point in the preface, so we must note the very presence of God as a consuming fire uttering the law. And that means that we are included in the church in the giving of that law as well. My second point under the preface to the Ten Commandments, the first was the presence of God. The second point is the way God addresses us and names himself. You notice how the Ten Commandments begin with the name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh. And of course, Yahweh is a proper name. It's the name of a person. And covenant law is not based, therefore, on abstract principles. Ultimately, it's the will of a person. The law reveals God to us by telling us what pleases and displeases him. It's a very personal thing. Uh, but we could preach a whole sermon also on the fact that it's Jehovah, the Lord thy God. And that one word, thy. God addresses the law not only as his personal will, but he addresses it to his personal people. I am the Lord, your God. I am your God. Israel, you see, was involved in the very giving of the law. A covenant law is not an abstract legal document. It's a loving self-communication between the Lord and his people, a chosen people, a people chosen for himself. And when we look at the law and we chafe, and when we look at the law and it seems to bind us in, when we look at the law and we think it's piddly and it's uh, and something that is to be thrown off or something to be ignored, remember, we're talking about that law that was addressed to us as the people of God. I am the Lord, your God. I am Jehovah. And if you wish to love Jehovah, you will keep his law. And if you wish to be his people, you will keep his law. Then my final point, having to do with the preface to the Ten Commandments, is that you'll notice that blessing precedes obedience and blessing follows obedience. First, you see the presence of God. Secondly, you see that it's a personal communication between Jehovah, the proper name of God, and thy people. I am the Lord, excuse me, uh, I am the Lord, thy God. His people are named as well. So it's... Uh, as I said, the presence of God, a personal communication, and then blessing precedes and blessing follows obedience. The emphasis, in one sense, is upon sovereign election. God, in chapter 19, says he has delivered Israel on eagles' wings. At the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so we see that his blessing precedes are obedient. And on the other hand, the law of God tells us that we are to obey because we are his people. That blessing follows obedience. If we'll obey, such and such will happen. Exodus 19.5 is uh, particularly strong on that point. Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession from among all peoples. You see, if you obey, then you are my people. On the other hand, he says, because you are my people, obey. Well, I think you can safely, you can safely ignore and repudiate, reject all very simple schemes of relating law to grace. There are no simple schemes because they are correlative. If you obey, you're my people. On the other hand, since I have saved you and you are my people, obey. Blessing precedes obedience, blessing comes after obedience. God promises prosperity and victory to those who will obey him. In Exodus 20 and Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 5, 6, 8, 
Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 28. Any number of passages show that blessing comes because of obedience to the law. And on the other hand, we see the law was given in the context of previous blessing and grace. Well, there's so much more to say. This, this will um, be sufficient for our introduction to the, to the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue is not the only summary of the law, God's moral demand, but it is certainly an important summary. And yet there are limitations to any summary. And we must pay attention to how we interpret the Decalogue. We must see how broad each commandment is, how narrow each commandment is. We must pay attention to the negative focus of the law. And then in terms of the preface to the law of God, we must remember the very presence of God. We must remember as well that uh, uh, blessing, as I just said, precedes and blessing follows um, obedience to him. And then also that the law is a personal communication from Jehovah, his personal name, to us as his people. Do you have any questions about this introduction now to the Ten Commandments? What I want to do after we take a, a short break, we'll take it earlier tonight than usual, is come back and jump into the commandments and, uh, and start dealing with what they require and specific applications today. Annie? Like obedience and grace correlate? Yes, right. They're correlative. The law, law and grace are correlative to each other. Paul says in, uh, in one way, grace is for the sake of the law. Grace came in order that we might keep the law, Romans 8.4. On the other hand, Paul says that the law was added because of transgression so that the promise might be fulfilled. And so the law serves the purposes of God's gracious promise. The two work together, hand in hand. And what I'm saying here is, we notice in the giving of the Ten Commandments that they're given in the context of God's previous grace and blessing. And yet, they're also given in the context where God says, if you obey me, you'll be my people. All right, so we must do away with very simple schemes of law-grace relationship and must conclude that they are reciprocal or correlative to each other. Other commandments on the uh, preface or introduction to the Ten Commandments? I hope you'll all especially get down how the Ten Commandments are an important summary, but not, their, not the only summary, and not by itself an adequate summary. Uh, because today that is, the, that is, as I see it, um, well, there are some people who think love is everything they have to talk about, and of course there are peculiar problems there, but even among those who think they honor the law will say the Ten Commandments is sufficient, and of course they're right and they're wrong, and you must understand how to split those significant hairs so that you don't be led astray. Well, if I don't have any other questions, then what I would like to do is to take a very short break here, about maybe eight minutes tonight, if you don't mind, and come back because uh, I'll take the rest of the time tonight to exposit part of the law, and then next week will be the last week we have together to get through all those important questions about abortion and euthanasia and lying and defense of life and all those sorts of things. Thank you. The message continues. The message continues. Leave your machine on. All right, at long last, having looked at the meta-ethical situation, the philosophy of ethics in our first night together, having looked at the three perspectives on ethics, uh, having to do with the goal of ethics and the kind of moral agent God is looking for, and having studied the question of the normative approach to ethics, having looked at social ethics in addition to uh, individual ethics, and having given this lengthy introduction to the Ten Commandments, we finally come now to the Ten Commandments, and that's what we'll be doing the rest of the time together. And we'll start at the beginning with the First Commandment. The First Commandment 
states that we are to have no other gods before the living and true God, or to state it, to quote it, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The first commandment requires love to God, the proper worship of God, consecration to God, and separation from evil. It requires love, worship, consecration, and separation. Let's look at these in succession. First of all, love. God says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. In a treaty between a king and his vassal people, ordinarily after the um, king of the treaty identifies himself and gives a historical prologue of what he's done for his people, the first commandment is that they are to have exclusive love for him. And so in the place in God's treaty where exclusive love would be required, God puts it this way, you shall have no other gods before me. That is synonymous in terms of uh, the covenant with the command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Exclusive covenant loyalty is required. And, And notice here that love is the grateful response of the subject to the saving mercies of the Lord. The grateful response of the servant to the saving mercies of the Lord. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, in thankfulness, serve me. Don't have any other gods before me. And that love, in turn, becomes a motive for obeying all the rest of the law. You see what an important place that has? God gives this historical prologue. I have saved you. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Exclusive love. That is the grateful response to redemption. On the other hand... This is the first commandment out of all the ten. And because God requires this as the response to his grace, this love becomes the motivation for obeying all the other commandments. Moreover, this can be, in fact, a summary of our obligation. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following, uh, Moses puts it this way, you shall have uh, no other, uh, he says, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind as a summary of that exclusive covenant loyalty which is also expressed by you shall have no other gods before me. So my point is that this love is grateful response to redemption. It is a motivation for keeping all the other the laws and it's a summary of all the other laws as well. The first commandment requires love to God. It also requires worship. Exclusive loyalty to God means exclusive worship to God. And in a narrow sense, that means we must demonstrate cultic purity when we worship God. The Israelites were given laws about sacrifice and about prayer and about the temple or tabernacle and all the rest. They were made exclusively, uh, these laws were given exclusively for the way we should worship the Lord, the living and true God. But more broadly, I want you to see that worship means ethical purity as a whole. Pure worship means coming before God with clean hands and a pure heart, as Psalm 24 tells us. You can also look at Luke 174, Acts 24:14, or 2 Timothy 1:3. The point is that pure worship involves coming before God with clean hands and a clean heart. The language of worship, the scriptural words that are used in Hebrew and in Greek for worship, can um, the language of priesthood, sacrifice, temple, holiness, cleansing, and all the rest are also used in Scripture for ethical purity in a general way. All right, um, Matthew 6, 24, or Romans 12, 1, we've already referred to. Offer your body a living sacrifice. There's the language of cultic worship, but what it really means is you must have ethical purity in the broadest sense. 
James 1.27 or Hebrews 12.28. Now, the exclusiveness of our worship involves exclusive loyalty to God's law. Please note that you are to not, you are not to have any law but God's law. Exclusive worship means that you honor His law, not just above all other law, but His law alone. Remember how we said Scripture is sufficient for ethics? The law of God gives us everything we need. And so the first commandment has a narrow as well as a broad meaning. In one sense, all sins are violations of the first commandment. All sins are defections from a pure covenant loyalty to God and pure worship of God. But thirdly, the first commandment requires consecration. We're not only to love God above all, we are to worship Him purely, but we are to be consecrated to Him completely. Covenant loyalty means that God's people and all their possessions are to be set apart to Him. And so you'll find all these laws in the Bible having to do with the sanctification of individuals and of things. You have the redemption of the firstborn, the ransom of individual, the consecration of the Nazarite, the consecration of the firstfruits, circumcision, Passover, and the Sabbath. All of these are laws having to do with setting things apart to God, consecrating them to God. You see, covenant loyalty must take a concrete form. One must not only love God inwardly and seek to obey Him. He must also confess the Lord openly, identify Himself as belonging to God. How often is it that people see that you belong to God? It's not enough simply to say, oh, I love you, God, in my heart of hearts. But openly, you see, you must have the mark of ownership upon you that you are set apart. And if you are not consecrated in that way, if you are not sanctified in that way, then you're not keeping the first commandment. And since we are fallen people, of course, that consecration involves confession of our sins and receiving of God's grace. We can't say we belong to God until we have been cleansed, until we have the grace of God. And when we confess the Lord, when we confess that the living and true God is our Lord, we identify ourselves with His people. We, um, we recognize that there's really no such thing as private allegiance to God. It's popular in the 20th century to talk about that sort of thing, you know, this individual religion, people going out in nature and doing their own thing, and, and being Christians but not being part of any particular church because they, you know, come to God individually and all that. Well, that may sound good to the 20th century mind or to the American mind, but it is not biblical. To confess the Lord is to confess that you belong to the Lord's people. Moreover, to confess the Lord and to be consecrated to the Lord is to recognize that you are a steward of the Lord, recognizing that everything that you own, everything that you hold is a trust from God. Begin to see how much the first commandment requires of you. All of your life, inwardly, outwardly, privately, socially, individually, corporately, and everything you own belongs to God. Well, we come to the negative focus of the commandment now. You shall have no other gods before my face. To put it literally in, from the Hebrew, no other gods before my face. You must love the Lord your God exclusively. You must worship Him purely. You must be consecrated to Him completely. And so now we come to the negative part. What does that mean we must separate ourselves from? If we are to love, worship, and consecrate ourselves to God, what must we separate from? Well, let me tell you, um, the Old Testament says that there are at least six things you must separate yourself from. First, from false gods. No other gods beside me. No Moloch, no Baal, no Asherah, or Asherah. Deuteronomy 6, by the way, I should note here that I'm going to be giving um, biblical references for the sake of time only in terms of, of chapter, except in specific cases when I want to talk uh, more definitely about something. 
Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 12. So we are to separate ourselves from false gods. Secondly, we are to separate ourselves from false prophets and religious figures. Deuteronomy 13, 18, and Exodus 22. Thirdly, we are to separate ourselves from false religious practices, such as divination or human sacrifice. Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. Fourthly, we are to separate ourselves from those who practice false worship. Exodus 12, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 21, Exodus 23... Ezra 4, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 23, Deuteronomy 25, 27, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 23, passages all over the place. Fifthly, we are to separate ourselves from uncleanness. Now, of course, that can be taken in a ceremonial way. There are certain ceremonial uh, uh, forms of uh, uncleanliness that the Israelites were to separate from, but also can be taken in an ethical sense. Uh, as in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, be not unequally yoked together. Uh, what fellowship has um, the temple of God with idols? Well, that is speaking of cultic separation, ceremonial separation, but it's referring to the whole of our ethical lives. And then finally, sixthly, we are to separate ourselves from any compromise with false religion. 2 Kings 5, Joshua 23, Ezra 4, Exodus 23, and 34, Numbers 23, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 16. This is the introduction to the first commandment. We are to love God exclusively, worship Him purely, be consecrated to Him wholly, and separate ourselves from, now I'll just summarize for you, separate ourselves from false gods, false religious figures, false religious practices, from those who practice false religion, from uncleanliness, and from any compromise with false religion. Let's start talking about some specifics now. Let's apply this, these four things. The first area that I'd like to apply this to is the question of the occult today. Of course, contemporary devotion to the occult traces uh, far back uh, before the uh, Christian period in Western history. And the fact that there is uh, occult, that there are occult practices today shows that our evangelization um, of our culture and of uh, Western civilization is not complete. Um, but even those who profess Christ, I have found, and often be tempted to dabble in the occult on the side using Ouija boards or um, looking at horoscopes or going even further into more explicit occult practices. And then there are those who investigate the occult in something of a quasi-scientific way. Is there, in fact, any connection between the position of the stars and the events of human history. I mean, might there be a correlation? Well, what should we say about the occult in the light of these problems? Scripture forbids worship of anything other than the one true God. False gods are not to be prayed to, they're not to be bowed down to, they're not to be obeyed as ethical authorities. And thus in Leviticus 19, 20, and in Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 18, God forbids turning to or hearkening to wizards and diviners. The authentic word of the living God is the only sufficient authority for ethics. We are not to hearken to those who pretend to be diviners, those who, uh, who are wizards. We must ignore wizards and diviners, not simply not teach what they teach, but we must ignore them. Is it uh, ethical to study the devil? Uh, well, let, let, me, let me finish the discussion of this whole question, and then, then we'll take up questions of that nature, okay? Um, we must ignore them. 
But now, what kind of ignorance does the Bible require of us? Well, the ignorance we're to have doesn't mean that we don't know about diviners or about their teaching or about the nature of the devil or something like that. It rather means we are not to give heed to, we are not to follow, we are not to submit to such people. It's necessary to know what, what uh, people who are in false religion say in order to interact with them, isn't it? It was... It was uh, impossible to bring a judicial sentence against the wizard in the Old Testament unless you first heard what the wizard said, because then you knew he was a wizard. So I'm not saying ignore them in the sense that you don't hear at all, but ignore in the sense that you don't heed at all. Uh, because false religions have no power over the believer, but by the decree of God, it's, re it's important that we not fear that we shall be hurt through association with the occult. See, I, I know some Christians who say that it's just too spooky. We shouldn't talk to Satanists or to ever read a horoscope or to study the, the history of numerology or uh, the doctrine of the devil or something like that. But, of course, we can't be hurt by contact with such people. Uh, false religions have no power over the believer. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, as the Bible says. Moreover, I don't think there's really a biblical objection to Christians giving a scientific study of occult claims uh, to show how they conflict with Scripture, to show how they conflict with each other, uh, to see to what extent, if at all, they might um, uh, have any truth to them. That is, this quasi-scientific study of them. Of course, you must reject astral determinism, the idea that life is governed by the stars rather than by a personal God. But just as we are to ignore the false religion of a witch doctor, but might make use of the true medicinal value of his uh, spices and herbs and so forth that were used, so also, to what degree there is any truth in occult teaching, that can be accounted for totally apart from the religious context of it, we don't deny those truths. See what I'm getting at? Uh, even as unbelievers can have elements of truth, so can false religions have elements of truth. I'm not saying they are totally false in everything they say, but we are not to hearken to them. We are not to give religious devotion to them. We must ignore the occult in the sense of not heeding it. What would you like to ask about the occult now, in terms of our religious or ethical obligation, Richard? That's what this part of the course is yeah. about, so go ahead. Depends on if you're heeding wizards and diviners and all the rest. I think that it might very well be a violation of the Eighth Commandment, the proper use of your money and that sort of thing. Um, but I don't think in and of itself going to see such a movie or being exposed to it for the sake of knowledge of how to interact with it. Uh, you know, I read Immanuel Kant and I, and I read pagan authors and so forth as an apologist, not because I feed my soul upon it, but because it's necessary to know what is, uh, what is poisonous so that the right medicine can be given. So I could see maybe some point in seeing a few of these movies. I wouldn't, you know, if a person made a habit of it, I might suggest that it's a little bit more than quasi-scientific at this point and that maybe it's amounting to dabbling in or being tempted by. But in and of itself, going to one movie like that, I don't think, uh, in this regard, would be condemned. But the dabbling in the occult, the looking at the horoscope and saying, well, maybe, you know, I shouldn't go out today, <laughs> or playing with Ouija boards and that sort of thing, strikes me as a violation of the law of God. Yeah. Uh, about Ouija boards, certain uh, objects that are used in the occult have been, uh, people have taught that not only books but also uh, objects uh, you know, can possess certain spirits and demons in them, and, uh, and that you should get rid of them. 
You know, in other words, in order, if you want to study the devil, study God, and you know that he's the opposite of that. Is that true? I don't know. If you want to study polio, do you study people who know how to walk well? <laughs> well, I agree with that. That's what I've heard. You know, I mean, it, you know, uh, Walter Martin is one of the teachers that. Walter Martin's one of the most knowledgeable people on the occult alive today. Say, say more. What do, you, what do you mean? Like a Ouija board? Is that what he uh, yeah, means? A Ouija board might be one, and another one might be a, uh, a pagan uh, a shishi dog or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, they do have shishi dogs. You know, uh, in, the, in the Far East, they put a shishi dog up on your roof to keep the evil spirits away. Shishi dog. <laughs> this is a deck. This is a decoration. I take it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an ornament. Well, I don't know if we can eat meats offered to idols. I'm not, I, I don't want to deny the artistic value of false religions, mind you, any more than I want to deny that certain things that are said by witch doctors may have medicinal value. Um, so I'm not so sure that I couldn't, you know, buy something. You know, a Christian might even be able to laugh in the face of Satan and say, "These things don't bother me." You know, we have them up in our house. That's our, I don't know. I, I think that approach is almost giving credence to the magical powers of them in themselves. <laughs> rock and roll music. That's not that's not my perspective on rock and roll music. I will. Um, we may get into that maybe in tonight or, or later about rock and roll music, but I certainly don't think the Christian attitude is to burn rock and roll records. I, I want to answer your question, but I, have we done so adequately? Well, uh, we don't give credence to the power of false religions over us, and so I'm not worried about the artistic value of this or the medicinal value of witch doctors or, you know, yeah, some taboo of... Well, why not? I mean, so so maybe I have these, these hex signs on my house and <laughs> shishi dogs or dolls or whatever all over the place. I mean, what can it hurt me? The problem is finding a, an adequate motivation. Why would anybody want to be surrounded by them? Hey, maybe you're just really taken with the artistic value of it, and you did your house in Shishi. <laughs> but the, <laughs> you, see, you see the point I'm making? To us, it has no power at all. But of course, the minute it amounts to dabbling in, hearkening to, submitting to that, then it's no good at all. There is no power inherent in these things. And Walter Martin, it seems to me, is one of the most knowledgeable men about these things. He could hardly very consistently well, say, don't learn about it. No, I doubt that you are. It's just a matter of consistency. Okay, that that then deals very clearly with the aspect of, uh, as I would see it, underneath worship. But now, how would something like that, and it would seem to me, from what you said in regards to separation, that we are to be separate from all false religious practices. Right. And if things like shishi dogs or whatever else you want to call it are associated with and integrally linked with false religious practices, what business do we have not being separate from the from even items that are clearly identified with? Now, notice, Jim, you're describing a culture that is not our own. I realize that. Now, if we lived in a culture in which anybody who had a shishi doll would be, in fact, taken as branded as a member and follower of such and such a false way, then, of course, we would not be able to have anything to do with it. But we are in a culture that does recognize Ouija boards. Well, I think that's a factual question, because I know there are plenty of people with Ouija boards in their homes that would say they, have, they don't put any credence in it at all. It's only a game. And they're wrong. Unbelievers who played that game find out they can become demon-possessed and all sorts of weird things can happen. Uh, but I'm not even sure that we live in a culture... You see, we live in such a pluralistic and secular culture that it's hard to find any mark of religion that is uniformly uh, interpreted in that way. Ouija boards are identified whether a person recognizes and say, well, I, I use it for occult purposes, but a Ouija board is recognized as being occult. 
Now, my point is the possession of a Ouija board is not in itself taken as a mark of adherence to it. Well, I realize that, but I'm talking about the aspect of separation, not adherence. Yeah, I think we are to be separate. I mean, I'm saying that the fact that you have a shishi in your house would not be taken automatically in this culture as a, a mark that you are affiliated with this false way. But would not a Ouija board? Well, that's a factual question. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, is our culture interpreting it that way or not? I'm, I'm skeptical. But, um, again, you see, this comes back to what motivation would a Christian have for having a Ouija board sitting around, or a shishi, or anything like that. I mean, I can find no motivation. All I'm saying is I can't, I can't see that it automatically, in our culture, affiliates you with... But there are plenty of cultures where maybe a Ouija board or other things would. And in such cultures, then you're absolutely right. The, ob the obligation to separate ourselves from all false religious ways comes up. I'm going to show you a little more practical way of, of separating in this culture from religious practices other than um, what we've been talking about. I'd like to talk about secret societies. Masons, Oddfellows, Rosicrucians, so forth. Georgios. <laughs> A sensitive question, but a relevant one. I think, um, for the sake of time and for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to be very straightforward and blunt about it. I am not impressed, either as a philosopher or a theologian, by arguments from origin. That this originated in such and such, and therefore it is that today. Um, I think you might be somewhat shocked if I told you the origin of many of our cultural practices that you don't think anything about. And the reason you don't think anything about the origin of them is because the origin is not... Uh, perceived, and it's not for the sake of the origin, or it's not even with the conception of that practice at the time of its origin that we recognize it today. For instance, you're going to soon go through graduation, Lord willing. You will wear a black robe. Why are black robes worn at graduation? Because at the time of the university's founding, those who were graduates of the university were deemed to be above the law, as were judges and priests, both of which wore robes. Now, does that mean we ought not to wear robes at graduation? Because in origin, it was a sign of autonomy coming as a priest would or a judge would to be above the law in virtue of your educated standing in the society. I don't think so, because in our society, you know, again, I can't find any adequate motivation for robes. I'm not dedicated to wearing robes, and I rather think it's a somewhat silly practice. I mean, personally, I don't laugh at people when they do it, but I, you know, why do it? It's kind of frivolous. Well, it's tradition. We do it because that's just pomp and circumstance for graduation. It is not, you see, the... Um, the motivation originally is not the motivation understood today. There's probably no motivation today beyond that of tradition. Uh, and likewise with, um, say, Halloween or Christmas. I mean, you'd have to be rather dull not to see that Christmas is the Mass of Christ. Well, does that mean that I support the Mass of Christ if I give a gift on Christmas? Well, um, there are two sides to that story. 